Good morning. Thanks for being here today. My name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor at Living Hope. And uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads that are sitting with us this morning. I'm the father of two little girls, seven and three. She just turned three last week, which is why I don't feel old enough to have kids that old. Um, but I was thinking about my dad this morning driving into church. I actually think he's watching uh, our stream right now. And uh, dads, if there's two words of encouragement I could give you from what my dad modeled, um, it would be consistency and honor. Uh, my dad was one of the most consistent men I've ever known. Uh, many of you have met my dad. He comes to church here about once a month. They live down in Pickerington. And my dad is a, a gentle giant. He can walk into a room and you'll never know he was there. He's just a very quiet individual. It's where I get it, if you know me. And he'll walk into a room and he'll leave. He may irritate you a little bit or just try to make a little joke that you don't think is funny. He's the king of dad jokes. And uh, he'll come in, but he's just, he was consistent our whole life. And I think back, and often I credit to my mom uh, that I've been in church my whole life, but I, I also acknowledge that that's really in part to my father as well, um, that I know Jesus because of my dad, and I'm thankful for my dad. But secondly, honor. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, um, to show honor to one another, excel in that, lead out in that as Christians. And I mean this in this sense. Um, my dad, so consistently over the past 32 years, has told me that he's proud of me. He's shown me honor in that way. And as a son, dad, here's this. There is nothing more powerful that you can do for your children than tell them you are proud of them. And no matter what they've accomplished, no matter what they're doing, even if it seems insignificant to you, tell them you're proud of them. And it will absolutely change their perspective. Let me give you a quick example, and then we're going to open up to Philippians chapter 2. Um, church planting. My dad has been in and out of our church the past two and a half years. He's seen it when we were pulling in an old stanky trailer into a gross middle school that smelled like skunks in middle school boys half the time. And my dad has been here. My dad was in this building the first week that we came here, and it was nasty concrete floors, gross walls, and uh, this place, <laughs> he walked in, he's like, you sure this can turn into a church? I said, I think so. We're, like, we're kind of in too deep. And uh, I think it was about five weeks ago. No. It was the first week we were open. So what? Three weeks ago. Um, first week we opened up the church. And my dad walked through the building. We're still not done, obviously. And my dad walked through. He said, Aaron, I'm proud of you. This is awesome. And I tell you what, I was getting a little discouraged because this is taking forever. <laughs> I'm ready for this building to be done. But it put wind in my sails uh, to keep plowing forward. So I'm not a crier, but I better stop before I, I do that. I, it'll never be done. You're right. Philippians chapter, it's always going to be more. You're right, Miss Diane. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to camp this morning. Two verses, verses 3 and 4. A uh, message we've titled today called Let's Fight. So hopefully you brought your boxing gloves because we're going to go at it. But uh, Philippians chapter 2, stand with me in honor of reading God's word. This is actually, well, I'll get there in just a second. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And we're building off what we talked about last week. Paul writes these words from a Roman house arrest in jail. He says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks again for this day, Father, the, the privilege that we have to gather in your house around your word to sing your praises, Father, and to uh, learn from your spirit. God, may what we hear today from Philippians 2 not fall on deaf ears, Lord, but give us open hearts to receive it, hands and feet to live this out as we chase Jesus this week. 
Father, we invite your presence to be among us, and we pray that Jesus uh, would be made big this morning. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today's actually going to be our last day in the book of Philippians for a little bit. We've been in this book so far uh, for 10 weeks. We've covered 34 verses in 10 weeks. So when we set off on this, we were still at our stay-at-home, watching church only online, and we still got people that are doing that. We just really wanted to take a slow journey through this book. And so periodically, we're going to take breaks from Philippians, and we're going to just study some other things for a little bit just to kind of let us catch our breath. And then we're going to come back to it, and it's very probable that we're not going to finish Philippians until this time next year, but we're going to put plenty of breaks in between this, uh, just again, to help us catch our breath and, and do all of that. But next week, we're going to start just a short little series, probably five or six weeks, um, that we're going to call Asking for a Friend. And so what we're doing with that, if you were with us last summer, we did about a six-week series that we called You Asked For It. And it's where we just spend some time each summer addressing questions that people in our church have about the scriptures, theology, doctrine, culture. Uh, we want to be an avenue in which people can go to to be able to frame things in with a biblical worldview. Right? There's so many different competing voices that we're all trying to navigate and wade through currently. And we want to be a place where we can teach people how to navigate those things from a biblical worldview perspective. And so like last year, if you're with us, we talked about um, can a Christian lose their salvation? That was a hot button thing that people were trying to, to really wrestle and deal with. We talked about uh, why do bad things happen to good people? If you didn't listen to that, that's a really timely one for what we're dealing with culturally right now. Um, so just questions like that. So all I'm encouraging you to do, if there's something you've been wrestling with, maybe something you've read in the Bible, culturally, something that you just like, man, how does Scripture deal with, with this topic? Um, in that worship guide that you took from our little wedding wall when you came in, um, you can write those questions on there. And then in these black boxes on your way out, drop those in. And that's going to help us form this next series that we're going to be walking through together. So I encourage you to do that. And again, you have several weeks to submit those if, if those come to mind. So if you were with us last week, we were in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and we talked about this idea of unity in the local church. And it was framed from Philippians 1, verse 27. Let me read that for us again just to, to catch everybody up. Paul said, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. We talked about that. He says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, here's what he wants to hear. Here's what he wants to see embodied in the church in, in Philippi. I want to see that you're standing firm. You've taken up your post on the gospel, that you're functioning in one spirit, in one accord, contending together, one, one together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter two, we saw last week that Paul continues what he talked about in 127, this discussion on unity in the local church. And last week we said in verses one and two that because of what Jesus has secured for us on the cross, that should drive us to constantly seek unity among the local body of Christ. Because just like any other organization that any of us are a part of, when you get more than one person in a room, we always have competing ideas, competing thoughts, competing beliefs in some cases. And with more than two people, friction occurs. Friction creates heat and heat creates those fires. And we said in the context of the church, we want to always fight for unity. We understand that in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has uniquely gifted us. We have different purposes in the context of the church. 
but with those opinions and ideas, and there's going to be people rubbing each other the wrong way where we create this friction. But in the body of Christ, we fight for unity because we are the picture of Jesus to the world. If we're the body of Christ, we are now the physical evidence of a spiritual Jesus who's seated up in heaven. And when people look at Living Hope Columbus, they should look at this functioning, like how in the world do people from different backgrounds, cultures, economic statuses, opinions, how do they all come together under this banner of the gospel and they work together to help people find and follow Jesus? It shouldn't make sense, but it does. And we want to keep that unity. This week, we want to talk about how we do it. Last week was the why, because Jesus secured everything for us on the cross. He's the boss. He makes the rules. He says to do it over 100 times in the New Testament. That's why we fight for unity. But how do we do it? I'm going to give us two practical things today, what I call the two fights that we need to engage in in the church, which is kind of ironic when you think about it because we're talking about unity. But the two fights that we need to engage, one's a fight for something and one is a fight against something. So let's jump in these quickly because I know all the men in here have steaks sitting in their refrigerator. You got a pork brisket or, some, or beef brisket in your smoker. You're trying to hit up the buffet before we, uh, you go home today. So buffets are closed. Y'all are a mess. I'm sorry. I probably, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. You can go to the steakhouse. But we want to make sure we get you out of here uh, at a decent time so you can do that. First thing Paul tells us, we've got to fight against pride. To keep unity in the church, we have to fight against pride. Look at what he says in verse 3, the first part again. Paul says, do nothing. That's our key word. If you take notes in your Bible, you need to circle that word, nothing. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Two actions that Paul calls out that we have to fight against in order to keep unity in the church. But before we get there, I want us to think about something really quick. Again, circle that phrase. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That means for the Jesus followers. So if you've repented of your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, and you're now walking with him when giving him your life, that means that you and I have to make the conscious decision to remove these motives in which Paul is about to explain to us. Listen, there's some habits, there's some actions, and there's some motives in the Christian life that sometimes we just have to make a willful decision to remove. You see, for some reason, and I do this all the time, I've created this kind of like false Jesus idea in my mind that if there's a sin that I need to deal with in my life, that all I need to do is just pray about it. Oh, Jesus, I pray you remove this from me. Jesus, would you rid this sin from my life? And, and look, I understand that that's, that's a very biblical thing. But there's some times where Jesus has already given you the tools and the capacity to cut that sin off from your life completely. And when Paul tells us here to rid yourself, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, this is one of those moments where we're simply reminded, you've got a sin you got to deal with, selfish ambition and conceit. Cut it off. You don't got to pray about it. The scripture is pretty clear. Let me give you just a silly example. I was a youth pastor for 12 years before we planted this church. We were in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I was going to bed one night. The other chaperone was in the room with me. Uh, he was getting ready to go turn off the lights. I crawled into my sleeping bag. I zipped the thing up. As he walked over to the door, I felt something on my leg. And I knew it was a spider. And I am deathly afraid of spiders. So I knew 
I unzipped my sleeping bag, and I didn't want to look in there because I could feel it coming up my leg, but I was starting to get super worried. So I unzipped the sleeping bag, and man, I ripped out of that sleeping bag. I was like Peter Pan flying off to Neverland. I just, I hit the floor, and I looked down, and there was the spider the size of my palm on my leg, all right? It may have actually been the size of the quarter, but this is the way I remember it. It was huge. It was, it was the biggest spider. It looked straight at me with all eight of its eyes. It looked straight at me. Now, in that moment, again, silly example, but these things help us remember the truths of Scripture. Do you know what I didn't do? I didn't lean on the edge of my bed in that moment with this spider that was the, like Goliath sitting on the side of my leg and go, Dear Jesus, Lord, would you remove this spider from my leg? Father, I know you can, but will you? God, I'm going to trust you to do it. You know, I didn't do that. You know what I did? I grabbed a flip-flop, I kicked that thing off my leg, and I sent that thing to the pits of hell. <laughs> I was like Thor God of Thunder just coming down on that. It evaporated. I hit that spider so hard. Listen, there's sometimes, more often than not, I believe, that there's sins you and I struggle with, and we simply need to cut them off. We get rid of them. Jesus already gave me the tools and capacity to do it. Some things you don't have to pray about because Scripture's clear about. You just do it. Think about this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. You say, Aaron, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Watch this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better to lose one part, one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now, we understand Jesus is using drastic hyperbole, hyperbole excuse me, to communicate this point. But listen, if you want to honor Jesus, sometimes you just got to deal with sin. Don't flirt with it. Don't skate around it. Don't try to kind of enjoy it. You destroy it. And Paul says when it comes to selfish ambition and conceit, we destroy it. Do nothing from those motives. Let's look at those two words really quick. I think those are important. Selfish ambition is this idea in, in the, the original language or this idea of trying to win followers for yourself. So there's division, there's disunity, there's disharmony in the context of your church. And so this, this idea of selfish ambition is I'm going I'm to win followers to my side. I want people to be on my team. You see the division that it's created. Conceit, we know what that word means. But it's this idea of, of trying to elevate yourself above everybody else. I want them to look at me and go, that person is wonderful. Man, I can't believe anybody would bring an accusation against them. They're too awesome. And you begin to paint yourself in this positive light because you don't want anybody to not be on your side. So I got to paint a picture of myself. I got to puff myself up so that when people look at me, they think I'm great. You know what the common denominator with both of those is? Selfish ambition and conceit. It's pride. And that's why Paul encourages us here in verse 3, you've got to fight against pride. Just pause on these for a second. In any organization, even outside the church, what's our immediate reaction when tension arises? Work, family, church, it doesn't matter. Any organization. If you've experienced this, you're going to know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, someday you're going to. Immediate reaction is always self-preservation. It's always self-preservation. When there's disunity, disharmony, or a fight brewing, we always immediately, as, as humans, we run towards self-preservation. Somebody speaks negatively about you. Somebody offends you. They argue with you. You immediately try to preserve yourself. That's always where we run. Now, think about this for a second. Disunity in the church, organization, business. It doesn't matter what it is. Somebody offends you. What does selfish ambition do? Hey, 
you hear what so-and-so said about me? Can you believe that? How dare they say something? Can you really believe they would say that about me? (laughs) I can't. Can you believe they'd treat me this way? I mean, all I've ever done has been good to them. Why would they treat me that way? Why would they say that about me? Why would they say something to somebody else about me? What did I ever do to them? And those questions with the wrong motive serve one purpose. I'm just trying to get people on my side. Because if this ship's going to sink, I'm going to take as many people as possible with me. (laughs) That's selfish ambition. On the other side of the coin, there's conceit. Conceit tries to paint me as innocent. Can you believe they said that about me? I'm always so helpful. I'm one of the nicest people you're ever going to meet. How, why would they say that? Can you believe people think that about me? I have such a good reputation in this business, in this church, in this community. Can you believe they would ever say that or think that about me? Self-preservation. I, I, I want to paint myself in a positive light. Why? Because I want you to come on my side. Here's what Paul says. No, no, no. Paul says you got to make the willful decision to cut those off. Get rid of them. Don't let selfish ambition or conceit ever make its way into your heart because those are forms of pride. And listen, God hates pride. God flees from pride. God can't stand pride in the heart of a Christian. Look at 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Peter says this, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I would much rather live in the the vein of God's grace than God's resistance. One of those is God's favor. I want to live in the grace of God, not God resisting me. So let's tie it back to unity in the local church because that's what we're fighting for. Listen, as Living Hope Columbus grows, more people from various backgrounds and opinions become part of this church. This is going to become an issue for us. Praise be to Jesus, these first two and a half years, there hasn't been too much of this we've had to deal with. But as any organization grows, friction is created, and this is going to be an issue. And so we want to deal with it now and learn to fight now so that in the future, it's not something that we have to deal with as much. Let's remind ourselves, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. If those things creep up into my life when disunity is present, Christian, let's do one thing. Let's get rid of them. Let's cut them off. You don't got to pray about it. If somebody in the church comes against you or there's there's disharmony there, you tell yourself in that moment, I refuse to take sides. I refuse to paint myself in a positive light. Why? Because that's only going to foster further division in the body of Christ. And a divided church is a terrible witness to a broken world. That's what we fight against. Now, what do we fight for? This is the good stuff. We don't like that stuff. We don't like to be told what not to do. Hey, here's a little side note. I was thinking about this. You know, sometimes when people bring an accusation against you, okay, what do we do? Leave me alone. I didn't do anything wrong. You know what a, pot, a, a better like, uh, response to that would be? Again, we're going to talk about humility and stuff in just a second. To actually take their words, write them down, and ask yourself the question, is what they're saying about me, is there a nugget of truth in it? Because you know nine times out of ten, there probably is. I've learned that. I'm only 32 years old, 12 years of ministry, seven years as a manager of a pizza shop. I don't have a lot of cool things in my past. (laughs) But I've learned that, that sometimes when people bring an accusation, a criticism, or a fight against you, that sometimes there's a nugget of truth in what they're saying, and there's an action, there's a motive, there's an emotion, there's a character trait that I could probably change 
because they perceived something in me that probably rubbed them the wrong way. That was free. Write that down. If there's anything you got today, that was, you're welcome. All right, so that's what we fight against. We fight against pride. What do we do now? We fight for humility. Verse 3, second part. Paul says, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. So we've removed selfish ambition. Conceit's gone. What's the opposite direction? What's the opposite reaction for us? It's humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride says, I'm wonderful. Humility says, you're wonderful. Pride says, I'm awesome. Humility says, nope, you are. This goes against the grain of who you and I are as we're wired as human beings. But this is what Jesus invites us into. Paul says, instead of selfish ambition and conceit, replace that with humility. I'm not going to take sides if there's a fight. I'm not going to puff up my ego or paint myself in a positive light. Instead, I'm going to live out humility. Look at the second part of verse 3. Consider others as more important than yourselves. I, I, I love this. When Paul uses that word consider, it's this idea that's communicated of placing value on somebody else. Consider. It means I made, I made the, the mindful decision to consider you more important than I do me. I'm placing value upon you. Think of it this way. Watch this. Who wants $20? Don't take it. This is my lunch money. All right? If I were to offer you $20 right now, let's pretend this is a $100 bill. I don't have any of those, but we'll pretend for just a moment. If this is a $100 bill, and I said, anybody, first person to raise your hand, you can have a $100 bill, even a $20 bill. Everybody in this room, unless you're crazy, like, you're going to take the 20 bucks because you think this is valuable. This matters to you. It's why we go to work for 40, 50, 60 hours a week, because these pieces of paper are valuable to us. We want more of them, because they're valuable. What if at the same time I offered you this picture? This is a picture of me. You can see this later if you want. I'm on this end, and my now wife is right here. This is two days after the first time I met her. It's the only copy of this picture I have. It's not online, I don't think. But it's the only physical copy that I, I actually have of this picture. I mean, her two days after I met her. Knew I was going to marry her, all right? Love that girl. If I offered this to you right now, who would take it? Nobody. You're like, Aaron, I don't want a picture of you from 10 years ago. That's weird, okay? Why? Because we've chosen to place value on this piece of paper, and we have not chosen to place value on this piece of paper. Now watch this. If I was sitting where you were, and Pastor Joe was up here speaking, and he offered me $20, or the only copy of this picture I have of me and Elizabeth, my friend at the time, two days after we first met, which one do you think I would take? 100% of the time I'd take this one. Because I've placed value on this. This matters to me. See what Paul's saying in verse 3? We have the ability God has given us as human beings to place value on certain things. I have little bronze uh, globes in my office at home that my grandpa gave me when I was seven years old. I believe I was seven. They're the kind of thing you'd find in a flea market and you'd walk past. But my grandpa gave them to me. So to me, they're valuable. I place value on them. You have those things in your life, certain things that you place value on. Friends, Paul invites us when we function out of humility, when we're going to fight for unity in the church, that we have to learn as Christians to place value on other people. 
Rather than building sides and trying to preserve myself when tension arises, disharmony or disunity, I need to pause and I need to say, you know what? There might be something right to what you're saying and I love you, so let's talk about this. I care about your opinion and I care about you and it's not worth losing this relationship. So I'm going to consider you more important than me and I'm not going to worry about my self-preservation. I'm going to worry about you and I'm going to live out humility. Listen to this. Write this phrase down. You fight for what you value. You fight for what you value. If something is valuable to you, you will fight for it. So as Christians, we must learn in the context of the church to place value on the other people who make up this congregation. Therefore, if there's ever tension, disunity, or disharmony, we will fight for that relationship more than we will fight to preserve ourselves. Romans 12.10, we mentioned this in the beginning. Paul says this, take the lead in honoring one another. Honor is always a choice. Valuing somebody else is always a choice. And so if I want Jesus to, if I want people to see Jesus through my church, then I'm going to choose to lay aside my self-preservation and honor you no matter the cost. I'm going to value you no matter the cost because you matter to me. That's how we fight against disunity in the church. Hey, last verse and then we're done. Verse four. Paul says everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. We're going to kind of repeat some of these things, but I, I want to make sure we understand the scripture. When it comes to unity in the context of the church, Paul's reminding us that we can't always be concerned about me. That's self-preservation. I can't always just be concerned about Aaron. You can't just be always concerned about you. That's pride. Instead, we've got to be concerned about other people. Pride only worries about me. I'm worried about preserving me. I'm worried about painting me in a positive light. It's always about me. I've got to build a group of supporters around me. That's pride. That's disunity in the church. If you want the church to be divided, do that. That'll work great. But if you want to see a church that is in harmony and unity around the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus, instead, you worry about we all the time. That's what humility does. Think of it this way. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. God took a man and a woman. He combined them together in the, the institution of marriage. And he says, the two become one. It goes from me, individuals, to we. We're now one. One of the greatest struggles that marriages have is they, di they don't understand how to live out that verse. Nine times out of ten, I've been in this game for 12 years. Nine times out of ten, one of the greatest struggles that happens in marriage is one or both individuals can no longer function in the capacity of we. They function in me. And they can't escape it. They've been gotten so used to only me all the time that when they're combined with another human being, it's like all of a sudden they're just around all the time. You ever notice that if you're married? Your spouse doesn't go away. They're always there, even when you want them to. They're just always there. I love my wife, but they're just always there. They never leave. But that's what marriage is. You see, when I was single, I was able to go and do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted because I only had to worry about myself. But now that I'm married, I now have to worry about another person all the time. That's me to we. Now, if marriage is a picture of the body of Christ, we can take that same illustration into the local church. You know, when you choose to connect yourself to a local church, not just a spectator that occasionally comes, I'm talking like you've plugged your life into the life of a church. You have to make the transition from me 
to we. Paul tells us that in verse 4. You can't look out for your own interests anymore. It's not about you. You know you don't come to church on Sundays for you? That's why we harp on that all the time. <laughs> Joe, I'm going to get in trouble. All right, I got nothing else to do, so we might as well. We don't ask people to come to church because we want to fill up a worship center. We're not even doing that right now. And guess what? I'm not bothered by it. Jesus has exactly here who needs you to be here. And I know at the end of the day, I've done everything I can as a follower of Jesus to invite who I need to invite and share the gospel with who I need to share the gospel with. I know I've done that. So I'm going to trust God's sovereignty to build his church. But the reason that we ask people to come, we harp on it, is not because of that. It's because there's somebody here that needs you. If we're the, really the body of Christ, like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about, that means we need every part of the body to show up. This is when the body shows up. We show up on Sundays at 10:15, And when we willfully choose not to, it's like a part of the body chose just not to. I get vacations, family stuff, people get sick. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking willful decisions not to engage in the body of Christ. Think about it. I've told this story a million times before. You wake up tomorrow morning, your right leg says, you know what, I'm just not going to show up for duty. I know the body's going to gather at 6.30 and we're going to wake up and we're going to go and do what we do. But my right leg says, you know what, I just don't want to. I'm not going to show up this, <laughs> this morning. What happens to the rest of the body? It hits the ground. Because a part of the body didn't show up. You know how frustrating it was a month ago to chop off the front of my thumb? You quickly learn how much you need a left thumb when you don't have one to use anymore. Because part of my body decided, out of my idiocy, but it decided not to show up for duty for a few weeks. I'm just now getting ready to use it again. It's kind of nice. Do we see it? When you choose to plug yourself into a con the context of a local church, Paul tells us here in verse 4, you know what? Ain't about you no more. It's 1 Corinthians 12 where I care about the body. Somebody needs to be encouraged. Somebody needs to be motivated this week. Somebody needs to be loved. Somebody needs to get a handshake. That's two weeks from now. You can't do that yet. Somebody needs a hug from me because they've had a terrible week. You can't do that yet either. We're getting there, I promise. But somebody needs that from me. They need that. That's why I show up. That's why I'm part of this. It's not about just gathering a group of people. It's because the body needs me. The body needs me to show up. And I'm choosing to do that. Hey, think about these last couple things and we're done. Churches thrive when we is always important than we. When we is always important than me. Disunity has no place in the context of the church when we is less important. I'm sorry, when we is more important than me. We have to rid ourselves of that idea. Let me read these verses for us one more time and we're done. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing. Cut it off. We've got to cut these out of our lives. What? Selfish ambition. I'm not going to take sides in my church. It's not going to happen. Conceit. I'm never going to build Aaron up and to be something he's not. I'm going to tell you something. I'm really not that wonderful. Some of y'all think I am, and I appreciate that. But I'm not. If you actually got to know me a little bit deeper and you hung out with me 24 hours a day, you'd learn real quick. I'm an okay person, but I'm not that great. So I'm not going to paint myself in a light that this, that's not who I am. You don't want to join my side. If you've got to pick sides in this church, always go with Joe, all right? He actually is awesome. But I'm going to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit in the context of my church. Rather, I'm going to function out of humility. What does that mean? It means I'm never going to strive to be awesome. 
I'm going to make sure you know you're awesome. I want you to come to this church every single Sunday. And if you interact with me, I want you to know that you are loved and you are amazing. And I love you because we interacted. That's humility. It means I don't think of myself all the time. I'm always thinking of other people. So what am I going to do? I'm going to consider others more important than myself. If you and I have tension, I'm not going to brush it off. I'm not going to walk away. We're going to talk about it. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to make sure we're cool. Why? Because you're valuable. And forever, I'm going to choose to live out verse 4, where I'm going to consider you as more important than me. Why? Because I'm part of the body of Christ. And as part of the body of Christ, I care about you more than I care about myself. You notice in the great commandment that Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. You're not in there anywhere. (laughs) It's about him and other people. That's what we do. That's what we do. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for this time together. God, thank you for this church. God, I thank you for what you're building and allowing us to be a part of it. And Father, we are so grateful that in these early days of living hope, Lord, this has not been something that we've had to deal with on a large scale. And Father, we're thankful for that. But Jesus, we also fully acknowledge that as you bring new faces and new people into this family, that the devil's going to try to get a foothold through disunity. He's going to try to divide the harmony we have in this congregation. And Father, we don't want that to happen. And so Jesus, I pray that you take the truth of verses 3 and 4, Father, that it wouldn't just fall on our ears today, but it would implant in our hearts. And God, we would guard against selfish ambition and conceit. And Father, we would chase humility. God, I pray that that would be the culture of who we are at this church. Thanks for your word. Thanks that it's still active in speaking. And may it drive us closer to Jesus today. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.